Hello, and welcome to Faith Fitness and French Toast. As always, I'm your host, Moses Allwood. I want to warmly welcome you back to the podcast. The purpose of this podcast is and always has been simple, to encourage, empower, and inspire athletes of all walks of life in their strength endeavors, faith walk, and of course, their best options for post-workout late-night meals. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Skull Smash Ammonia, Raw Grip Chalk, Primate Apparel, and our newest sponsor, Croqueta Strength, for their consistent support and encouragement. I've said time and time again, for the best hard-hitting ammonia in the game, there's none better than Steve at Skull Smash. If you need a brutal pull and you need that added grip, Raw Grip's Liquid Chalk is the highest quality on the market right now. If you're looking for no BS training and a team that'll stand by you through all the ups and downs, shoot a DM over to Croqueta Strength on IG for 10% off template programming when you subscribe to the podcast on Spotify. And I'll swear by this, we are humble, but we are savage. Primate Apparel's mentality of sticking to your guns and standing up to those who would do you ill is a vital part of my training, and you can head over to any of their Instagram pages to get some products. Today, I'm talking with Danny Grigsby, a Marine Corps Sergeant and the current deadlift world record holder in the 275 class, a man whose determination to succeed is matched only by his desire to help the community and serve his country. This is potentially one of the most hands-on episodes yet as we break down the proper method of hook grip, how to position yourself correctly in the sumo stance, and even some practical tips if you're considering a stint in the military. So sit back, relax, and let's dive in. Danny, what's going on, brother? Hey, man. Nice to finally talk to you and have me on. Yeah, I'm glad we were finally able to make it happen. It's been a little bit of chaos here the last few weeks. I just moved uh, across the country, so living out in Salt Lake City now. So it's a far cry from uh, Washington, D.C., where we first met. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I saw that. That was that was awesome. Well, so for <clears throat> for those who may not uh, you know, know you, I wonder just uh, kind of a little bit on the front end, um, I know you're you're military, you're a power lifter, you're doing a million things. Uh, I mean, how in the world did you get involved in this crazy sport of powerlifting in the first place? Yeah, so uh, growing up, I did a lot of, I'd say I did, I did numerous sports. So I did basketball, basketball, baseball. I did I started football in sixth grade, and and I also did track and field. So those are my four sports. But once I got to high school, I just stuck with. Well, except my freshman year, I did basketball. But then the rest of the three years, I sucked with track and football. Uh, that was my bread and butter for sports. And I ended up doing a year of college football. But I kind of just – I lost touch with it because the funny thing is growing up, growing up, I enjoyed I enjoyed the competition and I just enjoy, like, pushing myself. But I always told myself I enjoy I enjoyed training for the sports because it made me a better athlete in that sport. But then, like, my freshman year of college, and I was already, like – I was already – on the team, I was already one of the strong guys, at least in power cleans and squats, stuff like that. Sure. It made me realize that it made me realize I didn't enjoy football. Well, I did enjoy these sports to an extent, but I enjoyed the lifting so much more. And it was hard because football was a big, uh, for like eight, nine years, that was, I don't want to say my whole identity, but that's like what people knew me as. And I, I was pretty decent in high school. And um, I, I enjoyed it too, but it's like once you do something, sometimes it can take over. And you feel like you may not be anything else, or you think, "Oh wow, this is who I am." Then I came to a crossroads. And I was like, "Oh, I don't really, I'm not really happy doing this." It just felt like it was a drag. You know, when you do something and you just feel like it's just a drag, and it drags on. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that was hard at first, but I definitely was glad I made that decision to stop playing football. And then about, I'd say for like five, six months, I was just lifting, just no, no real like method to my madness, just kind of working out for the enjoyment of it. Like I always have enjoyed. And I met this uh, older gentleman. His name was Ken Tootin. He went to my uh, – I met him at my gym in Oregon while I was from in Corvallis. It's called Downing's Gym. Yeah, I still go there whenever I visit home once or twice a year. But, yeah, he told me, oh, you're pretty – at that time, I mean, I wasn't – I was squatting like 500 or 530, I think. I was about 220 body weight this time. So this was like when I was 19. So I was squatting a little over five. Like a bench like 275 and I, deadlift. Deadlift was around five or five fifty-two, I believe. Yeah. So he saw me lift a few times and he would jokingly be like, Oh, you know, like you should do a meet or something. You know, like this. He was just trying to he was trying to parlay me into that. And then one day eventually I was like, you know what? What do I got to lose? Right. So I did a meet kind of on short notice, like kind of like most people, you know, most people your first meet, you don't really train for it because you don't even know what to expect. And uh right. it and, and this meet was it was August of 2000 and 
2014? 2013 to 2014. Yeah, August of one of those years when when this meet was. And yeah, I basically at the meet I did around those numbers. I squatted like 500 to 520, bench 275, and I deadlift 600. Yeah, I was about 585 or 600. So then after that, I was like, oh, this is like a new way for me to like um, kind of relive that competitive spirit so I can still push myself, get that adrenaline. You know, like it's hard to explain, you know, what competition, it pushes you to that point where you really find out what you're made out of. So especially with that void left from football, track and field, all those sports I did, this was cool. At first, I didn't really think like I'd ever be that good or I'd even really get that strong. But it was just something cool to like, it gave me a purpose in the gym where I was like, okay, this is my structure. I'm going to keep on. I have something to follow because you can only every once in a while it's fun just to go off playing and just do whatever. But it's great when you have a purpose and it's great when you have structure. At least that's how I am. I love structure. I, the irony is, yes, I joined the military, but it was more than that. But I've always enjoyed having a plan and having structure in front of me, like knowing, OK, this is what I have to do. This is how I'm going to do it. This is my time allotted for it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah oh, and then to unpack there yeah. wow yeah no by all means please keep going keep going <laughs> yeah yeah i'll i'll just parlay into like how i got in the military so so during that time i went to college for a year then i dropped out and uh just didn't really have a plan i just didn't feel like i was really really had enough of a plan to still be in there i just felt like i was there just gonna had to be kind of like most people like just, just felt like oh you have to go to college that's what everyone does and uh i was just working on and off i worked at home depot I worked at Home Depot for a year. That was an interesting experience because I've never never worked in retail before. So you really you really kind of learn like because before that in high school in high school I was a janitor at a at a church and all, all the little jobs I'd ever do was kind of like just me to myself. And I was really in a way I still feel like I am an introvert, but I'm more I was forced to open up my walls being in the military because you're exposed to a lot of stuff. But back then I was very shy. So working at Home Depot really caused me to like. I had to interact with people 20, you know, during my whole shifts, however long they'd be. And uh, so I did Home Depot. And then from there, I found a contractor and I worked for him for a year, basically building apartments for a college complex. So and then at 21, that's why I joined the military, because at that point I was like, you know what? I still it was about two years since I dropped out of college. and I still didn't really didn't really have a plan. So I was like, what do I have to lose? Right. <laughs> I mean, it's four years. And then obviously. People always talk about the benefit. I mean, every every branch is slightly different in how those benefits work. But overall, I mean, regardless of what branch you enlisted to, you get the GI Bill, which, you know, people don't know GI Bill covers up to four years. Well, it's not four years exactly, but up to a certain amount of terms. Or it's about four years worth of college. Or you could use that towards a, a trade. You know, you want to be a plumber, electrician, HVAC. So any sort of any sort of like career education you wanted to do, you could use the GI Bill to pay for that. As long as you do, as long as you're in the military, you get it honorably. You don't get discharged for some negative reason. You rate the GI Bill. And, and obviously the medical and stuff like that, that military members get is also very nice. So, yeah, that was kind of – and at this time I didn't think – I didn't really know if I was still going to power lift because I figured, oh, I'd probably be – you know, you see all the movies, you get deployed, you go to Afghanistan, whatever. But I didn't really know if I was going to, like, have the time to still work out and train competitively. But uh, luckily, my MOS, I'm a utilities Marine, or a water filtration specialist to be specific. So I, I did deploy in 2018 to Australia for six months. But besides that, I was always a garrison. So even though I'd work long hours a lot of times, a lot of days, depending on the year, you know, we have inspections and times where we have to really tighten up our ship. So I'd work long hours. But even then, I was still in garrison. So I would drive late. My, my gym I go to is Ironmongers in Oceanside, California. It's a, or actually technically it's in San Marcos, I think, but it was a great gym. That's basically where I trained out of more or less for those two to three years. So no matter how late I got off, I would go there. It was about a half hour, 40 minutes away. So that was the one good thing is just being in garrison so much. I have, even when my days were long, I could still go to a good quality gym. I mean, there was a gym on base, but it just wasn't like most military gyms, just shitty bars. Like, and the worst part is those, uh, what, you know, those, uh, what are they called? The hex plates? Oh, like, yeah, I hate those, like <laughs> trying to deadlift with those or just, I mean, I don't even, I don't even fathom how that, how that design even came to fruition and how it even gained traction. Like, yeah, we're going to make plates that are like hexagon shaped. And when you touch them on the ground, they just flip everywhere. Right. But yeah. It seems like all military gyms, 
all military gyms, they always have those probably because they're the cheapest. Because that's, that's the thing about the military is a lot of times, a lot of what they have is the cheapest, cheapest stuff they can get. So, so yeah. 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 But I mean, there's, there's so much there. So, I mean, <clears throat> so kind of first part, I'll kind of jump into is you got to chat about that first time you got, you got to compete, you're now looking seven, six or seven years back. Um, and your numbers are actually at the time are pretty comfortable to where mine are right now. So I guess with that logic in seven years, you know, I'll be a freak athlete as well, but you know, <laughs> I digress. <laughs> well, I wonder, you know, that first, uh, that first competition, the first time you stepped on a platform, I love asking this to everybody. I wonder if you can even just relive that very first squat that you had on the platform. Uh huh. So it's kind of ner- it was kind of nerve wracking because uh, I'm trying to remember. I think it was. Oh yeah. So this, of course, like I show up to the meet and then I forgot what he told me, but they're like, oh, you should try knee wraps. So I I decided <laughs> to try knee wraps for the first time. Like, and of course, like the person who wrapped my knees. God, I think there's a picture somewhere if I could find it, but like. Like, whoever wrapped my knees did such a bad job that it was, like, unwinding. While I was walking on the platform, my knee wraps, they weren't even doing anything because they were so loose. And uh, so I was just kind of, like, I was nervous because I didn't really – oh, and I cut weight, which is obviously, like – that's, like, you hear that everywhere now. Like, for your first meet, never cut weight. It was only, like, five or six pounds. but still, like, just added stress onto the fact that I'm doing something I've never done before. Right. And you want to try to deplete yourself in some way. So I cut a little bit of weight, so I was kind of stressing me out. I didn't know how to water load. This was 2013, 2014. I had no, I just starved myself. I didn't like, didn't know about just cutting out water and making my day easy. But so yeah, it was just that. And then I was kind of, I fell out of my element because obviously I was used to all those other sports, but in powerlifting, yeah, it was just a, a whole new beast to me. So, but the thing I love was the rush. So my opening squad, I think of that me was like 400 or 450. I don't remember, but uh, this cool to be in front of a crowd. It was only like, 20, 30, 40 people, something like that. But it just, I could definitely tell in that moment, I was like, damn, this, I, I remember this feeling, you know, just like in a football game when you're like playing in front of a crowd or just like when you're in a big moment in any sort of competition where you just feel that rush, that, uh, what's called the, when you get that fight or flight response and it really just, you zone in. Yeah, I, I could definitely feel that with, yeah. I don't know if it was my first squad, but at least by the third one. Cause yeah, once you know, okay, shit's getting real. I'm, I'm either attempting a PR or I'm getting towards that territory where, I need to be on my A game or else I could lose or else I could uh, fail this lift. Yeah, I could definitely say that rush was there from the beginning. The first squat, though, was just cool because, like, for the first time I had people watching me lift, I was like, damn, this is – wow. I mean, yeah, I paid for the meat, but, like, these people are voluntarily coming to watch me lift. So, yeah, I definitely got a cool kick out of that. That that was probably the coolest part. Like, yeah, I was, like, 19 or – 19 going on 20, but I was like, damn, you know, this is I, – I, before that, I didn't really – before I stopped playing football, I didn't really – I don't really think I even knew what powerlifting was. Like, it just kind of was – Sure. I know it existed. I knew powerlifting was a thing, but I never watched videos. I didn't know – I didn't know who who was the best. I didn't know who were the big names or anything like that, you know? I mean, I I saw old videos of, like, uh, Ed Cohen and, like, Bill Kazmaier, but they were kind of wearing – they were barely wearing a gear. But, you know, back then they used to have, like, single plies. It wasn't even really single plies. It was just, like, ace bandages. But – so yeah, I didn't know anything about divisions. I didn't know there was single multiply raw, raw with wraps. I was like, sweet, I'm doing a this is a powerlifting meet. Okay, that's what it's called. And I'm just gonna lift. Like, but it was a great, it was a great day though, because I I didn't have too much expectation because all the all the weights I hit at my first meet, I basically did in training like the week before. Cause I was just like, like I said, when you have no expectations, like besides cutting weight, I wasn't really worried about my numbers. So yeah, that was I'll always remember that just because it kind of sparked that fire in me, you know, that I found a new pursuit. I found something new to pursue that I could push myself physically in some way, not just physically, but also mentally, you know, cause it's like the mental barriers of overcoming adversity of, Oh, you think, you think this is your tap. This is your, this is your potential. But in reality, you, you're capable of so much more. And over time, you know, you reset your goals and you reset your, reset your mind. Cause when I started, this is one thing I remember too, is uh, within the first six months of doing powerlifting, my, my, my ideal numbers, and it was like, I gave myself six or eight years. I think it was eight years. So in 2014, I was like, in eight years, I want to squat 800, deadlift 800, and bench 400. I thought that was like the coolest thing in the world. Because I was like, because back then, I mean, regardless of weight class, if you if you got a 2,000-pound total, you were like elite, yeah. like yeah. you were top 1%, right? I mean, nowadays, like, 
nowadays there's 181s total in 2000. So <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, it's, sad, it's a sad day, but for me anyways. But yeah, so I mean, I, I totaled 2100 my last meet. So I guess it took me a little less than eight years to do that. So I guess that's because, yeah, I was like, I'm going to get 2000 pound total. And I didn't, I thought an 800 pound deadlift was going to be like, I thought in my prime, maybe 800 would be like, but this was, like I said, this is when I first started and I had like less than a 600 pound deadlift. I had no, my form was kind of jink. Like back then I did conventional too. And I was just very rounded. My form was, I have, I, I have some videos saved on my Google, Google drive, I think or something, but yeah, my form, I'll probably post it in like a throwback video someday just so people can see how cringy I used to be. Like anybody can change. I tell you, if you work hard enough on your form, because people always think I've been, I, I mean, I am a technician kind of with deadlifting, but my first year or two, I had, I, I started at a very low place too. I didn't just magically, I didn't just touch a barbell and magically have the form I do now. It took a lot of practice and just a lot of tweaking, you know, and just watching, watching a lot of the greater, um, a lot, watching a lot of the better deadlifters and just kind of taking cues away from them. And you also have to realize body type. So if you have a certain body type, but you're like, for instance, I don't know, I'd watch guys like Dan Green and stuff, but you got to take that with a grain of salt because if they don't have the same kind of leverage as you do, then maybe their hand placement, maybe their hip plate, the the height of their hips, all those factors can differ, you know? So like, just because he may be my favorite lifter doesn't mean I'm going to be able to lift exactly like him, you know? So over time, I just played with like uh, stance with, I mean, grip with, I used to do reverse grip, but uh, about two or three or four years ago, I switched to hook just because I was getting a, I was kind of airplaning and my right, my open arm, my bicep would start to tense during workouts. So I was like, wow, that's not good. And obviously you see videos of people tearing their biceps and that kind of scared me. Yeah. So yeah, it really does. I mean, I don't, it's one of those injuries that just, not only is it a little cringy, but it's like, it'll never be the same. So I, uh, and I, I did hook grip from my time in, uh, from football because doing cleans, you know, like at least if anyone teaches you right, you cleans, you do it like Olympic lifter. You, so I had a little, but those were with a lot lighter weights and I was using a normal bar. So I already had some exposure to hook grip, but then when I transferred over, it took me six to eight months to really get comfortable with it. And my thumb just kept tearing. Like I tell people, like I probably tore my thumb 20 plus times before I became comfortable with hook, but no one wants to hear that. Yeah. Everyone just wants to, they, in a yeah. few weeks, they just want to feel happy and comfortable and they want the weight to feel light. But the, the thing is you need to realize like when you first start wrapping your thumb, you need to, the nerves around your thumb, over time, they kind of start to, I don't want to say go away, but they become numb and neutral. So over time, it'll be easier for you to put pressure down. But right away, that's not going to happen. And then the skin, the skin around your thumb, obviously, since I've been doing it for years, my skin's really, all those times of tearing and rebuilding, tearing and rebuilding. Now, like, I never, the only, around here, I kind of get some calluses, but I never get anything around my thumb just because, I've been doing it so long and my skin's so reinforced from all those years of doing it. So yeah, it, it's different for everybody, but hooker is definitely a trial period. You know, you, you got to start with lightweights. You can't, Oh, that was my worst thing too, is I tried to max out with hooker like my first time. Yeah, that was not fun. Right. So you don't, you got to be smart with it. Just, I would say for most people, if you're reverse grip and you want to try it, just try some back down sets, try 50, 50% or less weight. You just need to get comfortable one, you need to figure out how to like lock your thumb in. You just need to get comfortable with it and not just rush into heavy weights because obviously that's going to cause most people to quit because they're just going to set, set themselves up for failure. If they yeah. try to increase the weight too quickly with hook grip, I mean, it's definitely not easy and you need to give yourself enough time. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Wow. There's so much, man. You're, you're hitting me with so much good information here. This is great. We're only 15 minutes in. Thank you me. know, well, so. You know, you, you just unpack so much right there. Um, you know, even I think hook grip is something that a lot of people are, are scared of. You know, you see people like, you know, Garrett Fear or, uh, you know, someone like Ed Cohen, who's got, you know, absolute cannons of hands to hold every, you know, and, and you get this argument of like, oh, my hand is too small. Like my thumbs are too small for me to do hook grip. Is that bullshit? Like, can really anyone be doing hook grip? Or like, what are, what are these myths here that a lot of people have around hook grip that, you know, you can probably dissuade a little bit because obviously you've seen it be pretty effective. Um, so this is kind of something I'm, I have heard a lot of mixed opinions. I mean, with me, I guess you could say I'm kind of a hypocrite because I have really, I mean, my hands are like, it's so, it's very easy for me. I don't know how many inches my long my hands are, but I, for me, it's not a problem because I have 
I'd say I have above average length hands. So it's really, I have no problem wrapping my thumb and having plenty of coverage. But I've seen even with smaller people, like, because here's the thing too is, I think a lot of people go wrong because they think, a lot of people, this is what they do and this is why they tear their hands up so bad, is they try to like, they try to wrap their whole thumb and basically just like, they try to get that thing as tight as possible. You don't need to like, you don't need to grab your, you don't need to squeeze your your hand fully when you're doing a hooker. All you need to do is put probably a half or even a quarter of your thumb. As long as your thumb is locked down with either your middle finger or your index finger, I, I like I like to use my middle finger. As long as you lock it down, you can just like let it sit. You can let it sit towards the bottom of your hand, and it's not going anywhere, especially with chalk. As long as as long as these two fingers are locked in, you don't even have to grip. I grip the bar with like 50% of my grip strength because I just let it sit in my fingers and I know it's going to stay there. I just need to apply enough force to keep my fingers locked in place. Now, I think most people, they, they don't realize that. So they're just like cranking, they're cranking their fingers. And what happens? The bar rolls. And where's it going to roll into? It's going to roll into your thumb and it's going to be very painful. Like if I tried to grab it like that, even with 405, I'd probably drop it because it's just having the bar roll forward while you're trying to like keep your, keep the bar in your hands. It's just, it's brutal. Like, yeah, so I think a lot of it's just a lot of it's just people don't understand how to actually, like I said, lock their thumb into their finger, not not their whole finger, but part of their finger. It makes it easier, and since it pushes your hands down more, in a way, it makes your arm straighter. And that's that's what I like is because I didn't like how with reverse grip, like I said, you, and the part problem with reverse grip too is like my lat I had a Latin balance because my underhand, my my right underhand lat would uh would subconsciously react more or be activated more. So with hook grip, you're completely, your arms are completely straightened down. You're completely symmetrical. And that's why you see a lot of people like uh, Yuri Belkin. Uh, there's a lot of people who are good at sumo or conventional and they use hook grip. Their arms look so straight. It just looks like compared to, I like reverse grip, honestly. I think I think you can, you can get a tighter wedge and you get more lat activation when you use hook grip. It's a lot... I feel like I get a better lat activation. But the problem is when uh, when you do that, like when people do reverse grip, they tend to have a, sort of a bend in their arms. So then at lockout, it makes your it makes your range of motion that much more. And it it doesn't seem like a big deal when you're doing you know 50% of your max. But when you're when you're trying to attempt a a max weight and you have that extra bend compared to hook grip, hook grip you're just like damn. It, it pushes your shoulders for or it pushes your shoulders down. So you're literally just like you're as straight as possible. So I, that's why I really, besides the fact that it is easier to hold on, in my opinion, hookups easier to hold on to heavier weights. Is this more practical? I mean, why wouldn't you want to be more symmetrical, more straight? But obviously if you've done reverse grip for a certain amount of years and it's comfortable and you're not having those problems. I mean, some people tell me if you, some people tell me if you bring, cause I think this was my problem is I would have with reverse grip, I'd have both arms the same, but they said, with your technically your underhand needs to be like an inch wider than your than your overhand. But I don't know, that's just too that's too much for me. I'd rather just do hook grip. So yeah. <laughs> a lot of people can still do reverse grip, but I just I feel like if you're willing to put in the time and be patient and develop and do it, I think hook grip's a way it's a way better alternative, you know? And and I was doing and this is funny because people I always tell people I started doing hook grip before it was like now everybody does it. Everybody is like it's like a fad. Before now. it was cool. Like in two thousand in 2014, people would just be like, what the fuck? You're grabbing the bar double <laughs> overhand? Like, they didn't even – not a lot of people even knew about Hooker back then, or they were just clueless. They're just like, why are you doing that? Everybody everybody just reverse grip. Why are you doing hook grip? I'm like, because I don't want to tear my bicep, you know? And then, like, I remember – I think two or three years ago, like, 2016, 2017, that's when people started realizing, oh, shit, hook grip's actually it's, – it's really cool if you learn how to – if you can utilize it and do it right, you know? So it's kind of funny to see how when I started powerlifting, like let's just say 2014 to 2020 in six years, like like I said, not just the numbers, like like I said, like a 2,000 pound total used to be like the holy grail, and now it's just like, yeah, you need a 2,000 pound total to enter into any of these big meets, and then like things like hook grip versus reverse grip, and uh, I well I, even to now like people still say sumo cheating, but like I don't know, that's just a debate that. I mean, it's all just about muscles and leverages, you know, like, oh, and here's, I'll, I'll go into this one thing too. So, so this is why I switched from conventional to sumo. So probably also, literally I started doing 
Hooker at the same time I switched to sumo, so that's kind of ironic. But I, I got pretty strong conventional. I was doing I did I did 750. Yeah, I did 750 in competition, either 730 or 750. In training, I did 770 conventional. But the problem was back then I would let my uh I would let my upper back bend too much. So I relied too much on and you see this with a lot of newer lifters, just people who have this kind of style. Like when I would pull the bar off the ground, I would let my upper out is it thoracic? I would let my upper back bend too much. It would make it easier to come off the ground. But the problem is, guess what happens at lockout? You're in a you're not in a very advantageous position at lockout. The more you let your upper back round and your shoulders bend forward, it's gonna make your lockouts that much worse. So right. yeah, my form is not very optimal. And then big surprise, I started getting back problems because I was I relied so much on letting my back just bend to get the bar off the ground. And I wasn't really packing my last back then. Literally, like my upper back was really <laughs> My upper back was as strong as rebar because that's all I, that's all I used. Like my lats, I didn't pack my lats. It was kind of just like I would be really loose. And as I started coming off the ground, I would just rely on a ton of extension, too much extension. So my, I started getting back problems, kind of mid and upper back, just really locked up, and it was affecting me. So yeah, I was like, okay, I'll try sumo, and uh, sumo felt pretty natural from the beginning. I don't know, just because. Well, back then I was only 220, 230, but even now I feel like I've maintained a pretty good amount of flexibility, even as I keep growing. Because doing all those sports as a kid and just having a good overall base of athleticism, I mean, that's that's crucial, I feel like, in powerlifting. Like a lot of people, there's nothing wrong with starting powerlifting at a young age. But, I mean, you, you see this in a lot of other sports, too, where people start to, like, specialize at a young age because they think, oh, I'm not going to be – I'm not going to be strong or successful in this sport unless I specialize at a young age. But I think – and that's not to say, oh, do six eight sports. But I'm saying, like, doing a few different sports, you know, it, it, each sports uh, require different characteristics, you know, speed, strength, endurance, uh, agility, all that stuff. So I definitely think that helped. That definitely helped me with deadlifting is because I can get in pretty good positions just because my flexibility, my groin and my hips, they open up really well even, even now that I'm 250, 260. So – there's like there's nothing wrong with not being that active when you're a kid, but it just makes it that much harder if you try to get into this and you got to work that much more on mobility, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. And, you know, people who have seen you deadlift obviously know that, I mean, you have, you are absurdly upright to the point where a lot of people would never have the mobility to pull that off. So especially, you know, even just saying, I mean, you've obviously figured out a way to manipulate your body into being effective. You know, you've really made where your range of motion is probably what eight inches, something like that. I mean, it's yeah, it's significant. Yeah. Yeah. It was just a, like I said, it was a combination of the hook grip makes my arms, makes my arms more straight. And then my, my form has kind of changed. Cause for the last year or two, I've been pulling like I do now, but before I would kind of pull like, or I tried to pull this way, you know, I feel like there's like two different types of pullers. There's the pullers like me who kind of like, so I take a partial brace to the top and then I get down and I kind of wedge myself in. I lock myself in. So I take a little bit more time. And then there's people like Garrett Fear or um, I forgot his name, uh, Christoph Wezerbayeki. I'm probably botching that. But you know, the really good deadlifter from, uh, yeah, yeah. from somewhere in Europe. I forgot where he's from, but he he's deadlifted. He had, he had the world record at 220. I think he still does at 220 with 954 or 9, 950, 954. And, yeah, when he he's the kind of guy who, as soon as he gets down within two seconds, he's pulling it. He's like a grip. I don't want to say he's a grip and rip it, but he braced. He's one of those guys you brace at the top, and then as soon as you touch the bar, boom, he's already going. I really wish I could pull that way. I feel like that way is way more optimal if you can make it work because the problem is if you if you get down to the bar for too long, I feel like you're just wasting time and effort, and especially – it's really hard to brace once you're bent over and your lats are wedged. So that's why if you're going to get down like I do and take a little bit of time to get to open up your hips and get your back locked in, I take a partial brace. I'm already kind of reinforced. And then right before I pull, I take another, take another half breath so that I like have full tension in my core braced against the belt. And there, there has been times where I try to attempt heavy weights and yeah, I just, I don't feel tight because I was too bent. Out. I, I was trying to brace when I was already very bent over and it just gets, Especially as you get bigger, the bigger a lifter you are, that's very hard. You know, like now that I'm like 260, it's especially hard because sometimes I'm down there, I just feel like I'm compartmentalized because I'm like, I'm like all down like this, and my 
my lats compared with me bent over, it kind of feels like my uh, my torso is pressing against my legs. Not that I'm fat or anything, but just as your leverages improve, then you know you have more surface area, and that can uh, that can cause problems. But uh, yeah, like a year or two ago, I remember I was deadlifting and so I wedged my back and I was kind of like down there, and I accidentally fell back for some reason. But then I felt like I I fell back and my hips came into the bar. And I felt really tight and it felt really strong. And I was like, wow, that's weird. Cause like no one tells you to like kind of sit back and like, it was kind of unnatural at first, but then I kept playing around with that. And that's, that's why I pulled the way I do now is cause I feel like, so I'll set my back. And then as I'm bringing my hips to the bar, I'll kind of, I'll let myself kind of sit back and I'll just pull the slack out of my hips and with, with my hips and whatnot. And it's a very unorthodox way to pull. Like I said, I just, it just so happens to work for me and my my body and leverages, and it makes no sense why I pull like that. Like it's it's definitely not the most ideal way to pull, but it's one of those things where you just you find what works for you and you just go with it because yeah, ever since then that's just that's how I pull. And that's why it's just I want to make like a tutorial about deadlifting, but it's just so hard because a lot of a lot of the re- a lot of the points that make me such as good as I am at deadlifting is just from trial and error. And I wouldn't tell someone to sit back and lean back like I do because one, you could, that could be very scary. So, right. Yeah. It's just like when I try to, because a lot of people, like I'm in the Marines, you know, so a lot of when military people ask for delphin tips, I'll, I'll try to give them tips, but it's just like, I've been doing this for six, seven years. So trying to, trying to remember when I was just starting out delphin, what I was thinking about is, or what, what are the things that were most important when I started delphin? That's why I think it's important to have a journal and maybe take notes because I did take some notes back then, but then I lost some of them over time because it's just like, I'm, I'm definitely a more, I would say I'm more advanced. So like a lot of the basic cues, like, Oh, spread the floor. Oh, uh, wedge your lats. Like, I don't, I don't need to think about that anymore. Cause I've been doing it for so many years. Right. Those like, it's so ingrained in my mind that I just do it subconsciously. I mean, all I really think about now, the only two or three things I think about when I, when I pull is definitely my brace. I'll, Think about bracing at the top, getting down, getting my grip, wedging my lats, and then I sit back. And that's basically all I think about because all the other little cues that you teach a beginner, I already have down. You know, those are already in my toolbox, and it's already just like I do those. I do those things perfectly. So it's like once you master the beginning steps, then you're, you're then you're on the more advanced advanced parts of deadlifting. So yeah, because we had a at my Marine Corps. Where I'm at in the Marine Corps, we had a little lifting seminar the other week. And it was kind of cool because hearing kind of demonstrating to people how to lift, you know, but it, it also makes me realize how hard of a job it is for people who do seminars. Cause it's like you got to cater to all types of people, you know, because like it's very easy to like for me, it's more easy to talk to someone who's on my level or talk to someone, talk to someone who's powerlifting for five to seven years like me, because they I can talk to them in more advanced terms, you know, like sure. all these advanced methods that you you learn after you learn the basics. Well, if you're talking to someone who hasn't even learned the basics yet, well, it's kind of like you kind of got to slow down your boat because if I just tell them all the things I think about now or all the things I would recommend in my, where I'm at, that's going to confuse them because they be like, oh, like wedging, wedging your lats or bring your hips to the bar. What does that mean? Like if they don't even know how to deadlift basically correctly. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of different steps depending on where you're at. Yeah. For sure. so I try to dumb it down, not dumb it down, but yeah, like but scale it, scale it necessarily for, for those who are more exactly. to begin with, for sure. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, it's the classic, you know, I was a comms major in college and the classic way we teach everyone how to, how to speak, how to teach anything was the, the kiss method. Keep it simple, stupid. That's ultimately what you got to do. Like if you're a beginner, like you don't jump to stage three when you still need to be at stage one, you know, you need to climb the pyramid slowly. Yeah. You know? So no, that's good. Oh yeah. Well, um, you know, I was, you being in the military, a Marine Corps sergeant, um, you know, the, I, I would imagine your, your diet may be a little bit different than those, uh, you know, in general pop or those who are just going out and eating a McDonald's five times a week. So I wonder if we could go through the Dan Grigsby cookbook a little bit of what does one like, you know, when you were you know, in Australia on deployment and I mean, even now, what did the diet look like? Like what, what, what's behind the scenes of what the true military diet really is? Uh, so this is where it kind of varies. So every chow, in my experience, you know, there's good and bad chow halls. Like 
I mean, when I was at Pendleton, I, I was originally at Camp Pendleton in uh, Oceanside, California for about three, three and a half years. And I was lucky because the main the main chow hall we had, I was in main main side of Camp Pendleton, 13, 14 area. That chow hall was amazing because they had they always had beef or steak and they had rice or potatoes. So basically for breakfast, I love my eggs over easy. So I get a I eat five to six eggs over easy with some sausage, with some sausage and rice or potatoes. And basically I'd have let's see, the so after the eggs. I probably have like a cup or two of chocolate milk. And then, so I like to eat, I like to spread out my meals. So I need that for breakfast. And then mid morning, I have beef or steak and rice, like six, eight ounces of beef or steak and one to two cups of rice. And then lunch, lunch more or less the same, except with veggies. So I'd have six, eight ounces of meat, two cups, two scoops of rice or potatoes, or sometimes mac and cheese. I got sometimes chow hall, like it's unpredictable. Like not every day they have the same menu, but those were always staples there. And then, uh, my mid-afternoon meals also, be, once again, beef and rice, and uh, dinner is also the same as lunch. Uh, six ounces of meat, two cups of rice and potatoes, and then veg. And the cool thing is, like, I love vegetables, honestly, but it's it's the variety that I like. So lunch and dinner, I'd have a plate of veggies with the beef and rice, usually spinach, spinach, tomatoes, bell peppers, cucumbers. Like having a little mixture, but it sucks because now the the chow hall at now, they don't really have very many veggies. They just have little cups of veggies. But you, you just make do, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in Australia, Australia was definitely different because obviously their their diet or that it was an Australian chow hall, so it wasn't it wasn't a marine or it wasn't an American backed chow hall, so their options were slightly different. They had they would have fish. Um God, it's it's been a few years. I went there in 2018, so some of this is kind of sure. So they have, yeah. So this, it definitely wasn't as good in my opinion. But then again, it's just like, obviously, we're not used to like the Australian, like a lot of the traditional Australian stuff was just not my not my cup of tea. You know, like I'm, I mean, the past few years I've been pretty basic. I just, I don't want to say I'm like, um, I'm definitely not. What's a uh, Santa Fernandez diet called again? Uh, a vertical. Yeah, I'm not vertical, but I just I took what he said about red meat with a grain of salt, literally. Um, yeah. Just red, you know what I'm saying? Red meat is just like you can just tell it's more wholesome. It's just got more nutrients in it. So I always and I, I monitor it. I take blood work like twice a year, and I my levels are like I haven't noticed even with salting my foods, it doesn't it doesn't affect my blood pressure adversely or anything like that. I mean, I think like I feel like if you have a family. The only exception would maybe be a family disposition or something. Like if you come from a family that has predispositions to high blood pressure stuff, then you probably got to be more cautious in certain ways. That's kind of mm-hmm. just like common sense, you know? But yeah, I mean, I kind of like to keep keep the diet more simple. Cause I just like, I, I'm not saying I can't cook, but it just, <laughs> I love simplicity. You know, it's like the easier, the easier it is to follow something or the more cut and dry it is. I know a lot of people, if I if I have more of a cooking background, maybe I could mix it up and maybe find a way to I was to feed macros, but I just think red meat when possible. And I like and the thing about white rice compared to like brown rice or potatoes is more like I could whenever I eat my meat with white rice, I feel like within an hour I'm already like digested. You know, it goes through you so so fast because um just because it's so so digestible. So that's what makes it easy for me to eat five, six, seven times a day is when you have cleaner, cleaner fuel, you know, because if I was eating like crap all the time, like it's that's going to stay in your body longer. So, yeah, that's, that's my not so fancy, uh, not so fancy cookbook. But I mean, it. like I said, anything, anything you can be consistent towards, because that's the thing. That's the thing with lifting, like consistency is what what counts, you know, and that may take months upon months and years. But like it took me like five to six years before I became like oh, an overnight, like, Oh shit, this guy is decently strong. Like when I totaled 2,100 in, in February, that took six years of like consistency yeah. to get to that point. You know, a lot that went into that, but no one knows because they just see what I did. They just see it on Instagram and they're just like, Oh, he's probably, he probably started a year or two ago, but no, that was like, since 2014, I've been working towards that to finally get to where I'm at. So. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's and it's interesting you mentioned that because it's been a kind of a consistent theme as I've chatted with people like Marcus Leone and I were talking about the same thing just a few weeks ago that this these Instagram, these social media platforms just create this false reality where everyone's like, well, if they haven't posted on Instagram, then they must not have done it. And it's like, well, no, like, oh yeah, Instagram isn't the end all be all, you know? And and so people are just posting PRs or, you know, if, if you only post once a week, people are like, well, maybe he just wasn't training the last six days. It's like, no, maybe he just didn't post. No, that, <laughs> now that was the best part. Cause uh, during my, so my prep was December to February, late February when I competed. And like, I posted like every other week, maybe one video of deadlift, bench or squat. And yeah, like a bunch of people after the meet, they're just like, damn, bro, I didn't like, I didn't think you were going to do that. Well, oh, well, it's because I wasn't. But my thing is, I don't, to me, at least like, yes, I'm with animal military and stuff now. And I know there's like, there's prerequisites to when you, when you have a, when you have a sponsorship or you're an ambassador for a company, obviously there's prerequisites that need to be met. But I just like, at this point, I don't, especially when I'm training for a meet, I just don't want to, I feel like. If I have to post a video, this is where a lot of people c- come across a problem is they feel like that's why you see all the people laughing about people who are always posting too much because they feel like they have to market their content towards a company or something. I just I focus on my training. And if I'm like, damn, you know, I'm satisfied and I want to post this, I'll post this. But I don't when when I have to post too often, that's when I just overthink it. I'm just like, man, this is not I don't want to post right now, but I guess I should like. Right. That's why I just I post every so often just to prove that I'm doing still lifting, you know. But that that might change maybe if I could find a way to facilitate posting regularly and, and still making my content original because I don't want to become fake and I don't want people to think, oh, he's just posting. Oh, this dude sold out to this company and he's just posting because he needs to get the likes and the shares and he needs to like get his free shit, you know. I just don't want to be like that. So right. I just try yeah. to like, well because you I, I don't try to change who, who, like- who I am. You know? Right. Yeah. Oh, and, and you never want to. And I think that's what's increasingly happened. I, I think of like a company and this is nothing. I have no issue with this company at all. I think of like Bang Energy, for example, where they oh, get all yeah. these ambassadors, these people who, you know, either bikini girls or want to be bodybuilders who are like, I'm going to tag Bang Energy and Bang Energy CEO and everything I post. I'm going to go and lift so that I can post for a bit. And so it just becomes this like slavery almost to this company when it's like this company's not doing anything for you like they're, they're just profiting off of you doing this <laughs> like stop it yeah i mean that's that, that that's why like that's why people get a bad name and they cringe so much about about social media like it's funny because i remember like when did instagram first become a thing like i remember when i first got instagram in like 2012 or 2013 like back then man like what people were posting was just like random pictures of like of scenery somewhere. Like it's right. like what, what people used to post about back then. And now like, it's just, it's so funny how the, the tide has shifted. Now it's like everything's so centered. But back then people would just post random pictures and everyone was like, cool. Like you get your 20 or 30 likes and you'd be like, okay, that's, that's a day right there. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it still blows my mind that I even have like, I mean, 9,000 isn't a lot to most people, but like, Considering for the longest time I had like one or 2000, you know, that's like, that's a lot of uh, followers to me, you know, like, yeah, puts in perspective for you. <laughs> yeah, no, hundred percent. That, that, that many people are waiting and seeing what you post is, it's just, yeah. I'm like, why would that many people care about what I'm doing? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I, I remember. Yeah. Back when Instagram first came out, I mean, I was still in, I think I was maybe the beginning of high school when it first launched and yeah, you'd like post a picture of like, maybe some wings you got out at night and everyone like five people would be like, cool. And maybe like your aunt would comment and be like, nice picture. And you're like, holy shit, like this is awesome. Oh, yeah. And now it's like people are, are posting these edited photoshopped, perfectly curated. So it's just like, ah, oh, it's just a different world. It's just a bizarre, yeah. bizarre reality. No, that that's, I'll bring this up too briefly. Like, so when I, this is like 2016 or 2017, or one of those years, like I went to the LA Fit Expo, and it's so funny because, like, obviously, won't name any names, but like these bodybuilders, these fitness influencers, man, they like it looks they can kind of look good in some ways, but then you see them in person and they're like shorter and smaller. And I'm just like, dude, like, you look like a you look like wide as a barn door on Instagram, but I see you in person, and you're just like, I don't know, the average, but like, yeah, it's like people's perception, like, people who know how to people who 
take the pictures at the right angles. They Photoshop. They like, they know all the tips and tricks to enhance their figure. Like, cause that's what people, it's funny. Cause people like, people always say if they, if they see me on Instagram and they meet me in person, it's like, damn, you're way like, you look bigger than you do on this, but it's cause I don't, I'm not the best with angles. And I don't like, I don't, I guess I'm not doing, I'm not doing the thing right because yeah, people always joke. They're like, wow, you're, you're a lot bigger than I thought you were just cause on Instagram, you're uh your videos and photos show different, but it just shows like how good some people are. Like, I don't say cheating the system, but they just know how to work it to where they always look, they always do it at specific angles. And they're just like, I don't care. I just take it at whatever angle. And I'm like, okay, good. Like, you know, <laughs> the people who know me know, the people who know me know I'm not, I'm not short or I'm not weak. You know, like I don't need to put on this like persona, like, you know, yeah. <laughs> No, for sure. Well, you know, kind of on the back end of these interviews, you know, I think what's made this podcast really unique, um, kind of as I said before we started recording, uh, and for all our listeners, because I don't know if I've actually said this out loud on the podcast before, is this analogy of the Wizard of Oz. Uh, if you've got this loud voice, they've traveled thousands of miles to go see this wizard so that Dorothy can get home. And they're like, man, this doesn't seem like this is a real wizard. And they kind of pull back the curtain. There's just kind of <laughs> an old man with a megaphone. Um, and, and I love that analogy in talking with athletes, you know, especially, you know, having people who ha- hold the world records or who have big businesses and you're like, man, these are just normal people, you know, who have normal questions about life, who still have to wake up every morning, go to sleep every night. You know, they're just people who happen to be genetically gifted or have been lifting for a long time. And so what I think has made this podcast really unique has been these last two questions. I love asking people one that's about breakfast and one that's about faith. And so I wonder kind of the first one first. Um, what I love asking is, you know, what role, if any, has your own personal faith, religion, spirituality, whatever played into your own training or even with you in the military on how you've responded in being a a sergeant for the Marine Corps? So to be honest, I've never really been, never really been too religious. I mean, but like I said, in high school, I was a janitor at a church. It was at a Presbyterian church. So I was kind of like, I saw a little bit from that and it's not that I'm turned off by religion, but I. I do believe there's how can I explain this? I'm trying to make this sound a nonchalantly way, but I do believe there's like a higher, a higher purpose, you know, out there. And I For do sure. feel but I just I guess I just don't know the right uh the right way to go about it yet. But I do I do believe that, you know, it makes sense that people can look up towards something greater than themselves and something something that powerful. But I feel like in the military it's really taught me and there's a lot of people in the military who are very faithful, you know, like you have all different types of backgrounds, all different types of people with different religions. That's the cool thing is we all we all learn to work together. And sometimes we may not like each other, but at the end of the day, you know, we still we still have each other's backs. And uh but anyways, with the adversity aspect, that's what's really it really helped me has helped me with lifting a lot too, because in the military, and like I told you, I used to be very I was very kind of to myself, and then when I joined the military. I had no choice but to kind of open up because in the military, you don't get the option to uh, to just be hiding in the background and, you know, oh, I don't want to do this. I don't want to talk to like so I, I'm kind of grateful for that piece because I feel like even now, like I still continue to develop my social skills. And I feel like it's it's a good thing to have, you know, because in this day and age, you got to be able to communicate. That's uh, something that's never going away. You can't just like not be able to communicate with people and being in being out of your comfort zone is a huge thing. So that, that aspect definitely transferred to powerlifting because even when I'm in an uncomfortable situation, I always feel like I have control because I tell my, cause I've been there before I've been in situations where I don't, where I have to figure stuff out in a dime and the adversity and the pressures on me. So that transfers over in your daily life and also lifting as well. So I, I definitely, I mean, I feel like I, I've gained a lot of things from the military, but that's definitely one of them. Is just believing in yourself, call it faith, call it whatever you want, but being able to believe in yourself when things get hard and not just give up, but to just tell yourself, hey, you know, it's like a common thing. Oh, this is only temporary. You know, that, that's the truth. You know, like bad times, bad times will not last forever, but you need to like, you need to just push through it. So that's, that could definitely be one thing that I say that I really took away from the military. And then it's definitely helping the powerlifting life too. Yeah. Just having that self self belief in yourself is huge, you know? Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And especially in a sport in which, I mean, there's so much pressure on performance 
you know, sports like football, basketball and stuff like you've got games weekly or baseball, you know, three, like four games a week. You know, it's regular stuff with powerlifting. And this is what's so hard to explain to people that are outside of the sport. I mean, it could be six months you know, before your next competition, it could be a year to your next competition. And it's all this building up. It's and especially with social media, it's weeks and months of posting. And it's like, well, if you don't perform well on the platform, people are like, holy shit, you just wasted a year and a half, you know, where it's like, if it's a football game, even a bad <laughs> football game, you can go perform the next week and everyone's already forgotten. You had the bad game powerlifting. I mean, you fuck up in a powerlifting game and eight months later, people are like, man, that guy sucks <laughs> Like until you get to the next. <laughs> so getting to yeah. a place in which, Getting to a place in which you can you can just be like, hey, you know what? Sure, I had a shitty day or I had a great day. At the end of the day, like I'm going to move forward. I'm going to put my next best foot forward, and I'm going to go squat the next day in the, in the squat rack, and I'm going to improve. If you don't have that mindset, I mean, you're going to fall apart in the sport. So gaining that's so huge because, I mean, at the end of the day, the yeah. only person squat that weight is going to be you. Yeah, I feel like each uh, – this is something that over the years I've noticed too is like each – even if you have a bad performance, if you can take away either something in your preparation or something that happened on game day where you can implement that, it's kind of like as long as you don't make that same mistake and you learn from it. Because, yeah, you know, my first few meets were kind of oh, – I'll go into my kind of competitive history right now, kind of what I've learned. So my first few meets with Rocky, obviously the first meet is getting my toes wet, just no plan, just having fun. And then from there – I competed once or twice, so I did two or three meets total before I joined the Marine Corps in 2015. And those meets were – I was getting slowly better. I, I got a little bit better each time, but it's just because I was – I don't want to say newbie games, but your first two years of doing anything, you're just going to kind of sure. – I did um, I did Wendler 531, you know, that that program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, I, did that, I did that for my first few years, and I was making solid progress. You know, it's a great – like I said, anything you can stick to and you're consistent with and you follow to a T, I mean, you're going to assume, assuming your, your recovery and nutrition is up point, you're going to get some sort of yield, some sort of growth. So mm-hmm. I, uh, right for the Marine Corps, because after my first few meets, I was deadlifting, deadlifting over 700, squatted. Yeah, right for the Marine Corps in a meet, I did 650 squat, 720 dead, and like 320 or 330 bench. So I was getting, I was starting to, get closer to my goals. And then uh, I joined the Marine Corps. And the first year in the Marine Corps was just with boot camp, MCT, all the training I had to do in my schoolhouse. Yeah, I wasn't lifting a whole lot. And then uh, so two years into the Marine Corps is when I did my first powerlifting meet while in the Marine Corps. And it it went okay, but it was just hard at first for me to balance like the Marine Corps and lifting because, you know, a lot of times in the military, you don't get a lot of sleep. You wake up and it's just the hardest thing. I mean, it's, Certain branches are different. Like the Marines, you just you gotta run a lot. Like run most most units or platoons, you're running two, three miles a day. Cause Marines, you know, you you gotta be able to we do a three mile run for time. That's one of our physical. We do a PFT every year where you gotta you get a three mile run time, you do a max set of pull-ups and max set of setups. So we run it all the time because obviously that's a part of our job is being able to be physically fit and run enough. But that takes a toll on your definitely takes a toll when it comes to trying to lift heavy and also be very cardio intensive. So yeah, for a few years, I couldn't really juggle that. So my, my meets were kind of stalled out. So like my deadlift didn't really improve. Like for the rink where I hit seven, a little over 700 competition. And yeah, my, my meet in 2017, I barely got over 700 again. I deadlift, I, I benched like 330, 340. And my squat was, I think I did 660 in sleeve. So technically my squat got a little better. Like I did 650 in wraps. I did 660 in sleeves. And then think for and then I went on deployment 2018, so I didn't compete then. But in Australia, it was nice. Like it was I had access to a real gym there. I just wasn't like in a competitive mode. And then in 2000, let's see, two years ago, so that'd be 2018. Yeah. In March of 2018, I competed in California and I I squatted. Squatted 700, bench 350, 360, and I deadlifted 843. So, yeah, that was definitely my improvement from 2017 to, like, a year and a half later was huge. That's because I finally learned sumo, and then I kept gaining weight. Because that was the thing, too, is for so long, I tried to stay at 220. I was just worried if I gained weight, I wouldn't be competitive, you know, like most people do. But, yeah, I kept gaining weight, and I just kept getting stronger. So I was like – and now 
So I was a 220 for the first three, four years of the powerlifting. For a few years, I was a 242, and now I'm a 275 because I don't care. Like, I'm just – I'm like 260 right now, but I want to keep on in a healthy way, just gain – naturally gain weight, not worry about cutting for the time being. So – and then this – the meet I just did, yeah. So I went from – I did 1850 or 19. It was like 1850 two years ago. And then the meet I just did, I told 2100. So it shows there's obviously a lot that went into that, but gaining weight, like figuring out your, I mean, I'm always just reinventing myself, you know, before, except my deadlift. My deadlift's like, I'm not going to change my deadlift because I know my deadlift's like the most optimal it can be. I don't, right. I don't need to work on my deadlift form, but bench and squat, you know, I'm still making tweaks here and there to like figure out what really works, you know, because I feel like I'm not even, hit the ceiling yet with my squat and my bench. So yeah, it's been wild, but it's just, I mean, I, I definitely am happy to say I'm a Marine, you know, I feel like giving back in a way has been great. And definitely the Marine Corps has given me a lot, you know, when I was at a time in my life when I didn't really have a plan and I felt like I could get something out of the Marine Corps. So I'm willing to like work around the recovery aspects and sometimes not getting a lot of sleep and, you know, sometimes running more than I'd like and tr- having to juggle that because I know the Marine Corps last four or five years, I've been grateful for what I've had, you know, being in the, in the Marine Corps. So yeah, you know, I wouldn't recommend to, cause a lot of people ask me too. They're like, Oh, well I want to join the Marines, but I also want to power lift it. I'm like, well, depends on what your job is. Cause if you're, if you're, a, if you're going to be 0311, like a grunt or something, then obviously that would be like, right. it would be very difficult because grunts, grunts deploy the most. They're in the field the most. So they're like, you be, you having access to a gym as a grunt is not going to be, Depending on your unit, if you're deployable or not, it might not. It's probably not going to be there. Like, your job is a huge part of, like, because I'm a utilities Marine, so we can deploy sometimes, but we're in garrison a lot. Like, certain jobs have a higher probability of, like, always getting moved around and getting deployed. But uh, now I'm in – so now I'm in Washington. Yeah, obviously, you met me in Washington, D.C. I'm uh, I'm in school right now to become a become part of the body bears, the funeral detail team. Mm-hmm. So that's – I mean, that is just tough. Like, I've only been there two months, but it's hardest thing I've done in the Marine Corps, bar none. It's just a very honorable, it's a very honorable thing to do, you know, because originally I was going to, I had orders at Cherry Point, which is North Carolina. Then my buddy told me about this and he's like, oh, you should, you should hit them up and try to get a trial or see if you're able to do it. And I was like, oh, I thought I wasn't going to qualify just because I was already a sergeant and usually they have lower ranks to it. But luckily, you know, I tried out in June. And now I'm here, you know, but it's a very tough, grueling. I mean, right now I'm not really, I'm not training too heavy. And that's why I haven't posted the last few months is just because like the workouts we, the workouts I do as a part of their training program is just, it's just, if I tried to lift heavy and do that stuff, I would probably get injured. You know, it's just not, it's not very safe. I'm just, I'm maintaining, I'm lifting heavy enough just to maintain my weight and my muscle. But I'm, until I'm like done in the school status, I'm not going to like actually do a powerlifting program again, you know? For sure. Let let the body rest a little bit after yeah. the absolute devastation yeah. that goes to the human body when you're prepping for a competition. Um, well, you know, la- last big question I got for you and just my personal favorite is this question about breakfast. I'm a big breakfast foodie. I just absolutely love breakfast food. I'm a big eggs guy. I got back from uh, a church service today uh, and, you know, made my fried eggs, my avocado, you know, had my whole sandwich going. And so my favorite question to ask people is what is the absolute mecca of breakfast for you? If there's just one breakfast food that just holds the the gold star for you, what is it? Um, I mean, well, I guess it's kind of, I'll give you two parts. So obviously like my basic, the basis that I've been in the military, my basic breakfast is either, either, uh, like I said, I love over easy A's. I don't know why, but over easy is just like, that's, that's it for me. So I always, always got to have over easy eggs, but also like when it comes to the sweet side, I love, I love pancakes. <laughs> like mm-hmm. obviously I can't eat pancakes all the time, but so my favorite breakfast sweet food would be pancakes. It's chocolate, peanut butter. I'm very rich pancakes. But yeah, I mean, I just think eggs, regardless of how you have them, eggs are just a set. Like, I don't know if it's just like something that caught on early hundreds of years ago, or I don't know how eggs became a thing, but I do think like, Eggs is like you can't have you can't say you had breakfast without having eggs. I just it just doesn't right. Right. it just doesn't register to me. Like if you had breakfast and it was like a piece of toast and like 
whatever. I'm just like, well, where's the eggs? Like, you don't, it's definitely something that like, I don't know if it's just an American. I, I feel like around the world, that's obviously a common thing, but like, I can't imagine not, not having eggs with breakfast. You know, it's like you said, it's synonymous with like the bread and butter of breakfast is eggs. So I, yes. over easy eggs for me. Yeah. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. You know, I, I joke, and I know my dad listens to some of these episodes. So I'm here's to hoping that he hears me say this for years. As I grew up, my dad would just have a little bowl of cereal every morning with a cup of coffee and then he he was a runner, so he ran marathons, wow. and that was kind of his oh, wow. thing. And uh, when I started lifting weights, people like most like, "What do you eat for breakfast?" I'm like, "Oh, you know, I had about eight eggs, uh, a few pieces of the toast, whatever." And it's like the guy would have a heart attack. He'd be like, "You had what?" <laughs> I'm like, "Dude, like if you want to grow, you got to eat more than just you know a bowl of Cheerios in the morning. Like that's not going to last me more than 15 minutes." So if he's listening to this, Dad, eat your eggs because they're good for you. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so kind of final thing, you know, uh, I'm just I'd love to get just a little bit of advice for the listeners, you know, from you for people who are training, looking ahead to competitions even with you being in the military, maybe for those that are looking potentially at joining the military, whatever branch, you know, just kind of what advice you have for people, you know, kind of at this time. Okay. So I'll start with, here's, here's a big thing I say too. This is this in terms of beginning lifters. This isn't really a military thing, but I mean, I have nothing against, uh, I do believe obviously accessories, supplemental lifts, like, you know, pause, deadlifts, uh, deficits, all that. I feel like that has an important place in a program. I just feel like people who start off like the first few years and even now, like I don't, I don't do too many like actual compound accessories, but I see people like all over the place. Like they'll do in a, in a one workout, they'll do conventional or sumo deadlift. They'll do pause deadlifts and they'll do deficits. But the thing is like, just worry about like cementing your form and getting the basic, the basic fundamentals down. Cause my first few years of powerlifting, I didn't really do any of those accessories. I just focused on like figuring out how to squat, how to bench, how to deadlift. Because why would you, why would you do pause deadlifts or deficits if you don't even know if you don't even have your foundation set yet, you know? And obviously those are part of your foundation, but I feel like, and obviously this is way more prevalent with deadlifts. Like, why my deadlifts got so good is because I only worried about deadlifting. I didn't worry about doing like some crazy, uh, some crazy weight on deficits, some pause, some rack pulls, you know, block pulls, like. All that's great, but like if you if you aren't confident and your form isn't locked in and you're not just like if you don't have your all your uh, ducks in a row with your basic form in the lifts, why why would you just keep on like? But I think it's just like this is social media, right? Because you see people post like, oh, so and so posted a de- um, a deficit or a block pull PR, so I'm gonna start doing block pulls because obviously th- that's what everyone's doing, right? I mean, back in 2014, I didn't really. I didn't really have to worry about it in that crap. So I just did. I was like, sweet, I'm doing deadlifts today. So I'm going to, I'm going to do deadlifts and get better at deadlifts. And I didn't really, my old coach didn't really worry about that either. He's just like, oh, we need to re- reinforce your form and make sure you're confident in what you're doing. You know? So I, I think that's a huge thing is just worry about, just take things one step at a time. Don't like, don't get distracted with what other people doing. Cause like, like I said, it's very easy to see someone who's been doing it five, 10 years. And you want to try to copy their program or copy what they're doing. Well, they're way more advanced than you. They've like paid their dues and they're more, mm-hmm. they're more, they're on a longer path than you are. So I would say just work on, work on the basics first before you start just expanding. Um, I definitely, that, that served me well. Cause I had a good, and I had a good foundation in high school too. Cause uh, in the summertime, cause I'm from Corvallis, Oregon, which is where Oregon state university resides. And they had a, they had a lifting camp. So at the university, Literally, the strength and performance, the strength and conditioning performance coaches for Oregon State would put on a high school camp. So I got to learn how to like power clean, snatch, squat. I got to learn from like college strength coaches. So I had my foundation set. And by the time I went to powerlifting, I already had a good, I already had my fundamentals in place. So guess what? It mm-hmm. just made it that much. But back then, I didn't, once again, I didn't have social media. I wasn't worried about like, I wasn't worried about proving anything to anybody. So, so if you stay in your own lane and you just focus on getting better within yourself one day at a time and then months and months, that all adds up, you know, because once you ha- once your foundation is set, then you'll just start making huge leaps and strides just because you you have all that set and you're just going to keep adding the weight and then you can start doing deficits and all this stuff. 
and you you build block by block until you're just you become very strong. And uh, I'd say for military, like it's possible to like do what I'm doing and compete in the military. We just got to be realistic because, for instance, so a lot of times in the military we have hikes, we have like a lot a lot of things come up in our schedule that are very physically demanding. So there's days where I may have had like a certain weight prescribed, and well. Well, I just did a 15 mile hike yesterday. Am I really going to deadlift 700 plus for reps? Probably. Uh, I'll probably, I'll, I'll, you know, like realistically, is my back and knees, is that going to feel good if I try to like, even if something's programmed, you got to like, you kind of just got to think more on your feet because you're not going to last long if you're, if you're not accommodating for certain factors. So, and like I said, every branch is different. Like the Marines is kind of more extreme with their physical. Uh, conditioning so i kind of always had to account for that because i always trained very i always trained a lot lighter than people would realize like for instance in the off season for deadlifting the last few years i stuck between six seven hundred pounds i never went heavier because one i just in the off season i'm just worried about form and obviously trying to get some hypertrophy but also just with my marine corps obligations it was just very it was very hard to try to if, if i tried to go over seven pounds on deadlift what with my Marine Corps obligations, it just my back and stuff would start acting up. So you just have to be realistic with your job and your your uh, all that's going on in your life. So I would just say, military people, if you're going to try to do something like powerlifting, you just need to understand that sometimes you're probably going to have to like take days off. You're probably going to have to tone down your numbers, and it's not even bad because if you're already doing a physically intensive job, then you're already putting in a lot of work. You just need to tone back the volume or the hypertrophy of the reps. So yeah, I would just say it's just about figuring out what you can handle what, with your highly intensive job being in the military. Yep, for sure. Well, folks, this has just been an uh, incredible conversation with Danny Grigsby. You can find him uh, on Instagram at Dan underscore Griggs. You can also go follow Animal Military at Animal Military. They're usually doing a giveaway literally every two weeks. So if you stay following them, uh, get a chance to get some gear for yourself. If you are in the military uh, as well, we want to thank you guys for your service. Dan, we want to thank you as well, of course. Uh, if you're thinking about joining the military, Dan's the guy to reach out to. I'm sure he'd love to give the advice and, and not cut the BS <laughs> with you. So he'll, he'll definitely oh, yeah. let you know what it's really like. Um, but folks, with that, we will catch you next week with Jordan from Primate Apparel. Well, folks, this was just a great conversation with Danny Grigsby. You can find him on Instagram at Dan Griggs. If you love that episode and you're craving a little bit more from me, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify at Faith Fitness and French Toast, or visit us on Instagram at Faith Fitness Podcast for full interviews, trailers, and more for the rest of season four. We have some brilliant guests lined up for the next few episodes, so don't forget to turn on those post notifications on Instagram and stay connected on your platform of choice to be the first to hear about guest announcements and my classic early episode releases. With that, I'm Moses Allwood at Big Mo Powerlifting on Instagram. Thanks as always for listening, and I'll see you next week with Jordan at Primate Apparel.